welcome to Life in the Land, a Grazie Her podcast telling the stories of women living in rural and remote Australia. I'm Em Herbert, your host for today. I think culturally we have metrics of success which says if you haven't achieved something by a certain time, certain dreams are off the table. Yet every day there are people leading the way showing this simply isn't true. Baker, Green Thumb and former country journalist May Linnell shows us how. This best-selling Ruro, that's rural romance to you and I, author is set to release her fifth book next month. Yet she didn't publish her first one until she was 38. As they say, write about what you know. And Maya certainly knows a lot about baked goods, tending roses and longing glances. Romance novels are Australia's million-dollar love story, with the Australian romance category growing by 23% in 2021 and by more than 80% in 2022, according to Nielsen Book Data. The category is worth over $1 billion globally. And one of its largest subgenres on home soil, and one of its largest subgenres on home soil, rural romance. It seems we want the happy endings, and we want them now preferably in a cowboy hat. Yet her writing journey started far from the small country town she grew up in, beginning with one of the most infamous events in recent history. The, the Twin Towers went down whilst I was living 45 minutes from New York City. And so I wrote about it. It's, I'd sent so many letters back and forth um, to home, to mum and dad in country South Australia and to friends and uh, family back home that those events were turned into a newspaper article and just to update the local people in the the limestone coast about you know here's a, an expat abroad right next to the twin towers and here's what it looks like from her perspective mm. so to see that in print um, it was a really really cool experience you know it it taught me that there are stories no matter where you are and all of a sudden that idea of returning home to a safe little country town mm. in South Australia didn't seem like such a bad thing and and I'd been overseas for a year um, and I was really happy to come home it felt like the right moment uh, I'd had had some adventures I'd been to Europe um, I'd been down to South America for a quick dip and then very happy to score a cadetship at the country newspaper in Millicent, which is the town where I'd gone to high school mm. uh, upon my return. So that was just a really lovely um, jigsaw puzzles falling into place. Mm, completely. I love that serendipity and it's almost like the universe was really uh, taking you back there. It sounds like your time in the States was such a, a foundational experience, especially going through being so close to such a, a terrifying and global event that was the the Twin Towers coming down. Do you think that experience kind of helped to uh, to shape your writing or to give it a, a depth that perhaps wasn't there before? Yeah, I think so. And I think the fact that, you know, I felt like I had something to say. So previously, you know, I'd been a high school kid and probably lots of preconceived notions about what might be newsworthy, mm -hmm. but really just telling stories from the heart. I'm here. I feel this. I see this. This is how it's impacting me. This is how it's impacting the people around me. Mm -hmm. uh, it felt like such power to be able to put that down on paper and, and yes. to share that with people because, you know, the people back home were all quite worried. I had lots of phone calls and um, emails 
from people that were, oh my goodness, you're in America. And not only that, but you're not far from where this is. Are you safe? Do you want to come home? You're not going to get bombed in a, in a small paddock in South Australia. Come, come back, be safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I felt a real, um, I really wanted to stay with the family because the children were quite young and they were scared. And if I was just going to up sticks and go home the second that happened, what did that tell them about how safe they were? Mm. So I stuck it out. I finished my my 12-month stint there as I'd planned and then I went home. Um, and, yeah, it, it was really nice to get home, but nice to be able to be part of that huge upheaval in their lives and, and I guess be another little bit of security for them. Mm, mm, oh, absolutely. And so you came back home and, and what was your cadetship like? Did you love journalism and and how did that impact your life? Yeah, I really, really loved it. Em, I was um, one of those kids that was always asking questions. I always wanted to know, well, how does that work and why would you do that as opposed to that? So curiosity has been one of the foundations. I know Sky Metz and when she was talking to Meg Bignall, that fabulous Tasmanian author whose books I love uh, as well, and they were talking about curiosity. And I think uh, it's such a tool if you want to be a journalist or a writer to have that curiosity about about things because it puts you in good stead. You'll be at the post office or you'll be at the supermarket and someone will say, oh, did you hear about, you know, the horse in the paddock that picks up a, a basketball and plays with it in the paddock? If you drive past on, a you know, any given afternoon, stop and have a look at that horse and, and it will pick up that soccer ball <laughs> or basketball and, and play with it. So little stories like that, the, the kids that are growing sunflowers to put in the local show and, you know, really nice stories that just kind of pick you up and catch your interest mm. um, to follow those and that that beautiful ability to to kind of follow your nose down little stories like that it was a lot of fun. And it, and those little anecdotes, they're the things that really pepper and add colour to a narrative and, and to your story. So that storytelling element definitely stems from from the curiosity and also the ability to observe. You obviously have a, a quite a strong sense of observation. Was that something that you honed or do you think is, is innate? Yeah, well, I did my training through Country Press Australia. And so that was partly through Deakin University as well. And there were some really interesting tutors that worked on there that would, you know, pick up little bits of my writing. And you only sent them bits occasionally. Like you weren't sending them every um, newspaper edition that you did or anything like that, but the assignments. And they would find these little bits and go, ah, yes, that. That is what you need to try and follow Mm. more of. Mm. So I had a beautiful team. Uh, It was a family-owned newspaper at that stage when I was first working there and um, the editor had been, his father had run the paper before him and had some really experienced uh, chaps, the older journalists that would guide me and they'd let me run free and then they'd pull me back and say, now come on, Maya, you've done the lovely stories on the sale yards or the uh, the kindy kids doing a, you know, art exhibition. Now you need to sit down and write the netball. Come on, where's the netball report? <laughs> we need a thousand words on the, the, you know, the five netball games that took place over the weekend and and I would find that really tough, sitting down and, and writing, looking at a score sheet of how, who got how many goals and trying to equate that into a story. Um, I found it so much easier to be there, see things with my own eyes and kind of go, oh, well, that's interesting. And I wonder if anyone's ever asked that person this question. So, yeah, definitely it's something that was honed over the years. But, yeah, I think that instinct to kind of see it with your own eyes and, and report from there is really helpful. 
Mm. Oh my gosh. I think cadetships is just the best thing. Like learning on the job, there really is no substitute. It's, I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I feel like a really, it was a really good time to be in journalism as well, because I know that, you know, we've got a bit of a full circle when everything went digital. There was that whole fear that there would be no print media and it would be, you know, lost to the internet. But we're coming back to to people wanting to pick up a piece of paper, just like they want to pick up a paperback book. Mm. Um, but at the time when I applied for my journalism job, there weren't millions of jobs in journalism, mm. but there were a lot more than I'd say there would be now. I think also I studied journalism and was got I start, got my start as a in newspapers and magazines. And I think what it really taught me, because I loved writing as a teenager and through high school, but I would wax lyrical man and it would go on and on and on. And so journalism does teach you to be succinct and you have a deadline and you have a word count and you have to be able to encapsulate all of that information much more in a a formulaic sense. Do you find that novels are relatively similar in that you do have a formula or um, an ability to kind of plot out your books? Yeah, and so I definitely uh, love plotting. And I think that journalism training of, Maya, you've got to capture the reader's attention because they're not going to sit around while you describe what shade the grass is, you know, for, a you know, three paragraphs. Yeah. You need to tell them, you know, what's at stake, why we should care about this character, um, what their dilemma is and maybe allude to the fact that they've got some past hurts or some past trauma that's kind of stopping them moving forward in the future and and people why they need to stick around to find out why they need to mm. move past that mm. so it, it is very similar to the newspaper article you need to paint a picture pretty clearly in that first couple of paragraphs of the who what when where why um, and you get a little bit longer in a novel to be able to kind of hook your reader but it is definitely those basic principles of you can't go in with loads of backstory in the first couple of chapters or else people are going to go, wow, when are we going to get to the action? And <laughs> and just like that for a newspaper article. So what was your first foray into fiction from working as a journalist? Yeah, well, I was a little bit sneaky in that um, I, I did borrow very heavily and what I put forth as a fiction piece was actually pretty much non-fiction, but I, you know, packaged it up and it was it was... I guess quirky enough that a judge might have thought it was fiction. I entered a a writing competition back when I was considered a youth. So back um, in the early 2000s, it was the National Youth Week writing competition and and they wanted, I can't remember how many words, maybe a thousand words. Can't quite remember the word count, but just a story. So I decided to write uh, a story about when I was 12, my best friend and I, shoveled cow poo at her dairy and we sold it on the side of the road for a dollar or two dollars a bag until we saved up enough money for an airfare to New Zealand which wow. at the age of 12 we were we were juniors so that was a I think a three hundred dollars we needed to save so we we did we saved up the money our classmates thought we were crazy we put on <laughs> bandanas and rubber gloves and filled sack after sack after sack of cow poo from her laneway and you know, we had different marketing tactics. At one stage, we were running into the middle of the highway whenever there was a car coming. <laughs> um, her parents soon noticed that we were doing this. And yes, we sold a lot of bags of cow poo that way. But I think they were just relieved they hadn't skittled, you know, these two preteens <laughs> outside this dairy farm on this very quiet highway. <laughs> 
anyway, so we, I packaged it up as a story, submitted it, won the competition, and and that was wonderful because I guess the first thing was it had something to put on my resume mm-hmm. uh, for when I did start thinking serious about fiction, which was many, many, many years later. Yeah. Um, and I got, I got to go on a fantastic holiday to Uluru with my now husband. I got a week's work experience at Girlfriend Magazine in Sydney. So all these cool opportunities came my way from there on. Yeah, that's so cool. I, I just think, well, you're obviously very innovative saleswomen um, <laughs> and such a cool goal as tw- at, at, at 12 to get to NZ. Uh, but obviously the writing was in the stars that you were going to be a writer. But did you have aspirations to be a novelist? Was that something that you thought you would be an author? Yeah, so as a little girl, mum and dad had always said that, Maya, one day you'll write a book because they, they could see how much I loved books and how how hard I worked on the little stories that I'd write at school for the creative writing pieces and whatnot. I'd take them quite seriously and 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 loved them and letter writing. I did so much letter writing as a young girl. Um, but I, I put that dream on hold mainly because I didn't actually know anyone who'd written a book. I knew journalists because my dad was one and um, I had friends that are also friends of the family that are also journalists, but authors, no, I didn't know any. And naively, I just thought that that was, you know, old white people, old white men territory, really. Yeah. I, I had, you know, my favorites of authors that I like to read, but they were as far away as Mars, really, in comparison to where I was and and the type of um, people that I grew up with. So, it wasn't until I had three children under my belt. We had, um, I'd taken quite a few years off uh, journalism to look after the kids and, and to raise them. And my goal was once they were all at kindy slash school, then I would get back to work. And eventually that day came and I was quite scared. I remember thinking, oh gosh, I've been a mum for like nearly 10 years now. I, I don't know. What if, what if, newspapers have changed since then what if I can't can't do it can't hack the pace and so uh, we were having a discussion my husband and I like we're going to finish building this house soon I'll be looking for work what will I do and he said well Maya is there anything you've always wanted to do and I said oh well I've always wanted to write a book but you know who does that and he said we'll do it then just give it a go and so that beautiful conversation was in 2016 and we, well, so then I signed up for a writing course. I'd been listening to lots of podcasts whilst we were building the house. I had plenty of time to varnish 7 million lineal metres of, of timber and paint 7 million walls antique white USA. So <laughs> I mainlined podcasts on how to write a book and Jane Harper was uh, you know, one of the icons. She was a journalist. She'd moved from journalism to fiction and same with Trent Dalton. So these people kind of became these iconic um, authors that I looked up to. And she said, just because I was a journalist, it didn't mean that I knew how to write a fiction novel. There's a big difference between a 500 word or a 2000 word piece of nonfiction compared to a 90,000 word book. Yes. So she pretty much gave me permission to go take a writing course, not personally, but I have since spoken <laughs> to her and, and told her that those words of advice way back in 2016 really put me on the path for signing up for a writing course and investing money in one of those things that could maybe just fizzle out into nothing. Uh, yeah. But luckily for me, 
it, uh, it all went well. Just a quick note to say, if you haven't already, sign up to Grazie Her Magazine's email newsletter for your chance to win a copy of Maya's latest captivating romance, Kookaburra Cottage. Maya takes us into the life of Limestone Coast horticulturalist April Lacey, who's determined to lead her family's winery into the future. To sign up for the Grazie Her e-newsletter, jump online to grazieher.com.au, scroll to the bottom of the page and fill out your details on the mailing list. While you're there, why not subscribe to the print edition of the magazine and have six gorgeous copies of Grazy Her turn up in your mailbox every year. Subscribe online or make it the perfect gift for someone you love. That is just such a fantastic story and I love the the support to kind of cherish and, and follow and nurture a dream from your husband um, and and, and that sense of permission from Jane to upskill because just because you're good at writing doesn't necessarily know how you don't know how to to create a plot or narrative or dialogue or characters. So what did what course did you sign up for and and how was it helpful? What sort of techniques did you learn? Yeah, so as it turns out, there's lots of different courses that you can do, like a how to write your novel in 12 months course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was you know tossing up between two. One was the Australian Writers Centre, which looked fantastic. And then there was the Writers Studio Australia. And because we live out um, in country Victoria, we're four hours from Melbourne, we're five or six hours from Adelaide, there was no way I was going to be doing an in-person course. So it it had to be online for me. Uh, And I saw that Princess Mary had done this course with the Writers Studio Australia. And I thought, if it's good enough for Princess Mary, it's good enough for me. (laughs) (laughs) So I signed up to that one and, and it was fantastic. So that really broke down the structure of novels um, into the fact that you will need the characters to have a problem at the start of the story. If if they don't want anything and you've got no reason to be cheering for them or following them, um, you know, your reader's not going to be invested. So they talked us through, um, you know, lots of classic story structures. And if you pick up uh, a book or lots of popular films, there seems to be about a seven-act structure where you know, at the at the start of the book, there's an inciting incident. So something will happen to your characters to take them out of their everyday norm, whether it's um, something good or something bad, and your character has to respond. So little things like that. And then, you know, there's a certain point where there will be um, all hope is lost. So that probably about that three-quarter stage, there's, there's going to be a major problem and your character has to make a really big decision. Um, and so... It was wonderful to have this structure and lots of people signed up for this course and they could be writing horror, someone could be writing science fiction, someone could be writing a crime thriller and we were all writing different things but we all had that loose framework to kind of work within. Well, so for my for my story, the first novel that I wrote, which was the first novel that was published, uh, it was essentially a story about a country girl going back to her country roots she you know ran away to the city followed the bright lights and they do say that um, your first book is quite autobiographical so Mm. in a way you know I'm working with this fiction framework and I've got a story but I can completely understand where my main character is coming from because you know in the story it takes an illness for her to have to come back home to that family farm Mm. Um, for me it wasn't an illness it was 
you know, I wanted to come back and it, I wasn't going back to a farm, but I was coming back to a farming community. So, yeah, so it was, it's really neat. You, you put up, um, you put together these characters that are a, a, a amalgamation of your own experiences, you know, people and events and places that you recognise and then huge dollop of inspiration from your imagination and you kind of combine it all and like you're putting it together in a mixing bowl and stirring and stirring and then the story evolves. I just love that description and you know they do say write what you know and I love that because it means that everybody has a story that they can tell because everybody's lives are so unique and their journeys have been so particular to them. So why rural romance and what drew you to that genre? Yeah, well, I wasn't sure that I was even writing romance at first. Um, I was just writing a story that came to me. And uh, I went to lots of author talks when I started to think, well, okay, I've always been a huge fan of libraries and always gone to my local libraries and borrowed as many books as I possibly could regularly. Uh, And then I decided like it's really important to learn about the craft of writing by doing this course and finding out how other authors did it. So library talks offered that and one of the um, pivotal events was seeing Victoria Perman speak at the local library here and she said if you're writing anything with a thread of romance in it then you need to join Romance Writers Australia because they have courses, they have competitions, they have professional development, they have workshops like branding and building your own website um, for a discounted price for members. It's a great resource so you know if you've got that tiny thread of um, romance through it, which I did, then, you know, definitely go with romance and join up. So that was wonderful. That was a really a, another pivotal moment. And it actually also helped me score my publishing contract because then I started entering short stories, real short stories this time, not, yeah. not uh, autobiographical <laughs> nonfiction slash short stories. That was wonderful. I could do lots of competitions. I started um, getting first, uh, sorry, second and third places in these competitions. I'd done a few workshops on branding. So I knew that, well, hey, I live in the country. My main character is um, going back to her country roots. This is definitely rural romance. And for people that have never heard of rural romance, I like to describe it as McLeod's Daughters, but in book format. Because most people have watched McLeod's Daughters. They know it's about, you know, strong women. It's about farming families. It's about problems and things that, um, you know, properly impact people that are living a rural life. And and that's exactly what the books are. So it fit really well. Uh, I knew that they had a conference coming up every year. The Romance Writers has a conference. And they take pictures from people that are aspiring authors. Publishing houses come. They have days. You get a three-minute slot where you can say, I'm writing this. I'd love it to see it published by your publishing house and I think it'd be a good fit. Here's the synopsis uh, and whatnot. So that was the perfect entry for me to get into publishing. Yeah, that's so fabulous and so proactive. You obviously really kind of, you knew what you wanted and, and you went after it. I do think that romance gets a hard knock and it does have a stigma and you sent me some really fantastic stats yesterday I'd love you to talk me through a little bit about just how much of a bestseller romance is in Australia and globally yeah well thanks Em because I do feel like some people go oh romance giggle 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 because 
Um, you know, instantly when you think of romance novels, you do. You think of those Mills and Boone books with the red spine and often the the guy on the front cover with the bare chest or the lady in the evening gown. Um, but that's just the smallest little snippet of the romance cherry. So romance is number one global best-selling genre out of all the books. So romance keeps the book industry alive. It uh, it allows people that are writing the really quirky literary fiction that's only got a very small select audience, it allows them to get publishing contracts because the publishers will put out, you know, a, quite a few romance titles. They'll put out mystery and thriller. They'll do, um, you know, travel and cookbooks and coffee table books and whatnot. But romance is definitely their number one seller because people want to be loved. People love reading about love and and there's nothing wrong with that. I think the good thing about romance is that you can pick up a book, you can escape to a different world, you can cheer for the underdog. Um, you know, the second chance romances, people that have had a really rough trot and thought they'd never find love again and, and yet they do. So you can go along the journey with them and, you know, feel that real uplifting um, escapism when you're picking up a romance novel. Mm, absolutely. And the optimism, you know, we want, there's plenty of doom and gloom in the world and you only have to turn on your local news channel or any news channel to see that, but to be filled with a sense of ease and joy and optimism that things are going to be okay. Really, it can come from reading a book, a beautiful book. Yeah, absolutely. And there are so many different, um, you know, parts of the industry. The, you know, there's the really sweet stuff that doesn't, you know, it'll end with a kiss and that's the limit of it and you can go right to the other end of the spectrum so if you want something that's really hot and really sexy you can find that really easily and you can pick it up at your local bookstore or your local library and you know if that's what you want to read that is fantastic you can access it and you can be happy about it mm. uh, and then there's everything in between as well so I like to write on what we call the sweet spectrum or the closed door which is that you know I don't have graphic sex scenes in my books but, you know, I, you will have the, the couple going in for, for a kiss and, you know, they might head to the bedroom and then the door closes and, and essentially that's it. You can kind of join the dots together as to what might have happened between that scene and then the next scene. Um, but, yeah, I, I feel like it's one of those things that people should read what they want to read and be happy to read whatever they they feel like if you want to have your heart ripped out and be in the fetal position, you know, after you've finished a book and think, oh my goodness, I'm going to need a week in therapy to recover from that book. <laughs> then that's great. But if you want to be joyous and uplifted, then that's also great too. And there's a market for all of those books. Yeah, totally. I also love you um, shortened it to Ruro. Is that right? Is that, am I saying that correctly? Rural romance is Ruro. I didn't realize that. <laughs> Yeah, and there's some fantastic trailblazers who've really done a wonderful job. Um, it was such a huge subgenre of uh, of romance, and it, it's kind of swung around as well. So, rural rural romance is currently the biggest genre within romance, which is great. Which is great for me. But there's some ladies that have done a lot of hard yards in kind of paving that way and getting that readership. You know, Rachel Treasure, Rachel mm. Johns, Fleur McDonald, Carly Lane. So many great authors that have been putting out some really good content uh, for many, many years. And I'm just lucky enough that I can, you know, look out over my computer desk right now and I can see some kangaroos hopping along on the side of the sand dune. I can see my sheep walking to the uh, to the shed 
And then I can sit at my computer and I can write about that and characters that are looking out similar windows and dealing with orphan lambs and things like that. It's it's a lovely genre to write in. I don't think there'd be a listener on the Grazy Her community who hasn't read Jillaroo by Rachel Treasure. I mean, that is an iconic country read. Uh, It went round and round and round my boarding school and uh, it was well-thumbed. So, yes, I think there are some some iconic trailblazers. But you are one of them because you're one of our best-selling Ruro uh, authors. Yeah, thank you. It was a real lovely thing to see in the um, Saturday Telegraph, the Sydney Weekend magazine uh, earlier this year had a, a wonderful spread and it was a surprise to me to see that, um, you know, my name's up there next to these fabulous women that have been writing um, so well and people that I've admired as well. So making bestseller lists is something that you never, ever take for granted. I've mm-hmm. got four books out. I've got another one coming out soon. But, you know, that joy of seeing your name up there, like the first few books that I published were up there with Danielle Steele and Nora Roberts in the um, Weekend Australian and that was just joy in itself. So to then continue to be, um, I guess, you know, the readers are doing wonderful things and picking up Australian books and I'm always grateful for that. So cool. So when you went to this conference and you pitched your novel, I mean, how quickly did it all, did that then become something that you then held in your hands and what was that process like? Yeah, so one of the things that I was really surprised to learn about publishing is that it takes a really long time for things to happen. So I'm working right now, I'm drafting next year's book and I need to have that finished by, you know, midway through this year so that then the whole editing process um, then takes a fair while because it's not just me that works on the book after I've finished the draft. Uh, lots of different sets of eyes from the publishing house go over in different formats throughout the process. But yeah, so it was, it is a long process. I signed, or I actually was lucky enough to get in touch with my publisher before the conference. And it was because I'd seen her name on the conference attendees list and I knew that she was taking pictures. So I'd um, got in touch with her through social media before the conference and she commented on my post to say, I see you're writing rural romance. Let me, I'd love to have a look. So it was really lucky that um, I'd kind of not headhunted her, but I'd had a little bit of a due diligence, journalistic research to work out who I'm going to be, you know, speaking to at the conference, hopefully, and what they looked like and what their interests were so that I was ready in advance. And it just worked really well in my favour that she could see that. Um, I did a little, I wrote down, it was May the 22nd in 2018 that I had that message from her saying, you know, can you, I'd love to have a look at your manuscript. And I, of course, straight away the next day went, yes, definitely, here it is. Uh, and then July the 9th, I had uh, an email from her saying, I've read it. I love it. Do you mind if I take it to the acquisitions meeting? So she had it for six weeks. She took it on an aeroplane with her to New York to go to a book fair and and read it then and came back and, and said she'd like to acquire it. Now, that's never a done deal. Those acquisitions meetings, it turns out, are quite scary things. Each of the publishers take in a different book that they would like to buy and they have to pitch it against all the other publishers and the other manuscripts that other people have found from that company just for that fortnight because they have one wow. of these meetings every fortnight. Wow. Uh, so that was a really nervous wait 
just waiting to hear what uh, whether it would get picked up or not. And there's so many different things that go into that, whether, you know, if they'd just signed up a new rural romance author, then they probably wouldn't have recruited me because they just filled their kind of category of the newcomer for the year. Um, or if they'd just recently published, if Fleur MacDonald had published a country girl who's just been ill in the city and has to go back to her country roots and is wants to do some baking therapy, which was, you know, the main thrust of my first book. If she <laughs> just published one like that, then, you know, mine might not have gotten over the line. Mm. So, and then uh, I actually got to hold that beautiful book in my hands uh, the following June. So 2019, Wildflower Ridge came out. It had gone through lots of rounds of edits because, you know, it was my first book. It needed a good hefty chunk of stuff shaved off it and added into it and whatnot. Uh, it had a whole new title, the title that I'd chosen to the working title. I've never kept a working title so far. So every book that's come out of mine, um, I still have to remind myself what it's called sometimes because in my head for the year or so that I've been working on it, it's not called that. Wow. That's so wild. It's It sounds like such a huge process and so much more convoluted than you expect when you just pick up a book and you read it. So it's such an interesting insight into the background of the industry. And what I also love is that you were in your late 30s, I understand, when you did publish your first book, which I think is such a, a beautiful thing because I think for a lot of people, we think you have to have your creative pursuit completed before you're 25 whereas you have a different perspective on that which I really like yeah so and one of the things that I kind of thought um is that it was really important for me to have lived a bit and to have those uh, experiences where I'm tested where things haven't gone to plan um and I've had to deal with it and I've had to you know show some resilience and and come through it you know in our family we've we've lost people that we've loved we've um you know, gone through lots of different things. There's been mental health challenges that that we've overcome. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes you a stronger person and you've got more to say and you've got more empathy. Um, if I had written my manuscript when I was straight out of high school, I would have had a really different perspective on things. And, I, you know, you would have had that naivety um, perhaps and that presumptuousness, whereas now I like to think that the stories that I tell are about women that have gone through a bit and they've overcome challenges and they've succeeded and they're still, they're not perfect. They're facing challenges and, you know, meeting these growing family demands and um, career life balances and rural versus city divides and things like that. They're not just kind of, you know, walking out and expecting everything to be perfect. So I think for me, having had a little bit of experience under my belt before I started penning these huge big fiction um, novels and they're 90,000 to 110 words wow. the manuscripts and and that's not including the 50,000 words that might have gotten scrapped in the editing process that I've deleted and then rewritten to strengthen different characters or subplots and whatnot like there's some pretty serious amount of words I don't know whether I would have had that dedication and commitment if it wasn't something that I really really wanted yeah absolutely well you are prolific in that you are writing a book a year I mean tell me about your writing process and how you get yourself to write down sit down and write and and how you deal with writer's block and how you manage that around your very busy life and full life with three beautiful children yeah well I I like to get up and get some exercise in at the start of the day because 
I do find that sitting at the computer, I spend a lot of time, you know, quite sedentary, I'm sitting, imagining, thinking, lots of time typing. So I get up early and I either go walking with a girlfriend or I, if the weather's poor, which here in Southwest Victoria, we have some pretty average weather, I get on the treadmill and, and smash out some podcasts or some talking books whilst I'm exercising. I've got a beautiful friend who lives down the road and She'll walk with me at dark o'clock in the morning and we'll see shooting stars and we'll talk over plot points and, and different things like that. I've just taken up um, swimming in the ocean once a week. It's going to be interesting to see how that goes in the wintertime. But uh, <laughs> 6.30 in the morning, a nice dip with a group of other like-minded women that want to get up and start the day on a good note um, is really good. You feel like you've gotten you know, some energy out of your system. You can sit down at the computer. I get the kids off to school. Um, and then by nine o'clock, I want to be at this desk. I want to be sitting here at the computer with my tea or coffee in hand and looking at my notes. I've got, and I have, I have taken a different approach each book. And I think you evolve. I don't think there's any writers that I know that have stuck with the exact same process from first book to third book or, or thereafter. I, I think you learn little bits along the way. And last book that I wrote, which is the one that comes out this year, that was a hard book and I felt like throwing my computer out of the window, like over the second story balcony so many times <laughs> wow. because I followed rabbit holes and I had a loose plot in my head, but I didn't stick to it as well as I should have. And I wrote so many words. I think I threw away at least 50,000 words of that manuscript. And it was infuriating because I handed it to my publisher um, it's the first book in a new series. So I'd had the beautiful four McIntyre sisters in the first four books. So I knew those characters so well. I'd spent, you know, half a million words with them by the time I finished that series. And starting a new series in a new location um, with all new cast of characters, it just, um, it got out of control. And I went down big rabbit holes, did diversions, and wrote way too many words that weren't quite sound and handed it in to my publisher said, Maya, where's all the baking? Where's all the, where's all the gardening? People that pick up a Mayel and Earl book, they want to see these things because this is your hallmark. This is what you love. And it is. It's what I, it's what I do in my spare time. So I naturally can't help but put that into my characters' lives. Uh, and I'd gone so far in the other direction of trying to make it super, super different to the other four books that I'd lost touch with, you know, what my calling calling card was oh, so I had to pull it back in and for this next book which I'm writing for 2024 I'm determined not to lose as many words and not mm -hmm. to spend quite so many infuriating weekends and uh, days just staring at the computer hating what I'm doing because when you've got all those words and they're not making sense I'm sure you find when you've got a, a piece that you've written for the magazine M that that hasn't come together the way that you imagined it to come together. You feel so frustrated because you know you can do better. Mm. Do you find that? Mm. Oh, absolutely. And I don't know a writer that doesn't, isn't frustrated <laughs> with yeah. the process. I mean, yeah. often we're okay with the end results. Well, 
80% of the time, 60% of the time. But, you know, the process is hard. And so I always find it so interesting to speak to writers and particularly authors because, like you say, it's such a sustained practice and 90 to 100,000 words is just so many words and it requires such dedication and focus. So I, I think it's so interesting to know how you do that and what keeps you coming back and and do you set yourself uh, goals? Like do you have a writing goal per day or words or um, time limit? How do you do that in a practical sense? Yeah, so I do. I dedicate. Um, so for this book, I've taken a very strict, disciplined approach, which, you know, I started out with when I was writing the first uh, the first couple of books, I was really disciplined and I had a word count that I wanted to hit every day before I walked away from that keyboard. Um, and yeah, and I got a bit lax with that. So this one here, I'm trying to write two and a half thousand words every day. Mm. So some days I'll finish that at 1.30 and then, you know, I'll let myself have lunch and then I'll get on to things like, you know, website and I do a lot of blogging for Romance Writers Australia and book reviewing, which has just kind of naturally come my way because I love Australian fiction and I was just consuming all these wonderful books and I just wanted to tell everyone about them. So I started setting up more interviews and more blogs and things like that. I was doing podcast takeovers regularly. Um, but, yeah, so for this year I'm, I've am i got a word count. I have been doing, yeah, 2,500 words every day. I've got a really strict um, scene breakdown. I've got about 7,000 words just in what every scene is for this entire book, which I'm, I'm working to. And sometimes I go over, so it, it might be a lengthy first draft, but at least I'm looking at something every time I'm not sure what to write next sentence. It's like, Maya, look at what you've got here. You have it all here in front of you. You just need to expand that 50 words of what's going to happen in that scene into a thousand words. So that's been really useful. And I'm loving that. Uh, it's been a great way to start this novel on a really good note. And the thing that keeps me coming back to the computer and the keyboard every day is without a doubt, the messages that I get from readers. I have the most wonderful readers that write in and they'll send either on social media or they'll send um, an email or contact through the website to say, I, I just got one yesterday from a New Zealand reader and she said, Maya, I haven't read a book in three years because I've got young kids, but I've just in the last two weeks read two of yours. And it's just been wonderful on holidays. I picked up the cover. I That's love the daily goosebumps. On... I love that. Yeah. I and then you know I've had some earlier this year a lady who hadn't read in about six years who said the exact same thing. I haven't been able to read. I've got young kids. I can't focus. But I picked up your book and I just fell in love with the characters and I was swept away. And now I've bought all four, or I've made my husband buy me four for my birthday. Um, or you know all of them. So it's just beautiful people that have had like chemo treatment and they've taken the book with them to the hospital to distract them from what's a really tough time. Mm. It is amazing the way that books can transport people. And mm. I'll always be grateful for those letters because when I'm having a tough day and I'm thinking, but what are you doing next to my characters? What, what are you doing? Why are you driving down that road? Why don't you, you're supposed to be in town at a Pilates class in this scene. That's what you're supposed to be doing. And, and you've just gone off and there's a mob of sheep across the road and, you know, you're kind of waiting and whatnot. So I, I go down different tangents and sometimes I can't quite get the characters to do what I want. And then I'll get a message from a reader like that. And I'll go, ah, oh, that's right. 
it does come together in the end. I have to trust the process. Mm-hmm. In my head, I will get those characters where they need to go. Mm-hmm. They'll pull me in different directions, but surely I can wrangle them back. And at the end, once the publishers have done a wonderful job going through it and saying, hey, Maya, have you thought about maybe stretching out that subplot and do we really need that character? Can we combine these two characters into one because they're kind of similar and there's too many names and they're amazing. They do these really cool things that are like behind-the-scene menders, like stitching with needles and thread, fixing little holes in the plot and whatnot. They don't fix it for me, but they'll give me some great advice on where I could start fixing it, which is really helpful. Yeah, that's really cool. And so you have your latest one, Kookaburra Cottage, that comes out at, in the middle of the year. So can you tell us a little bit about that and, and where readers can can find a copy? Yeah, so that one's set in a South Australian winery. We've got a family vineyard. We've got a horticulturalist called April Lacey and her family vineyard is Lacewing Estate. And then we've also got a uh, winemaker coming across from England called Connor And he's got a whole heap of different stuff in his past that he's hoping for a fresh start. And April wants to do up uh, rustic stables on her property and turn it into a B&B. So they've got a few challenges ahead of them, but it's really neat. One of the things that uh, neither of them are any good at is cooking. So we've got cooking classes as one of the little features. We've got a small country show as well uh, and lots of really lovable characters and uh, some some lambs that uh, run amok throughout the story as well. So all these little things come together and form Kookaburra Cottage. Uh, it's coming out on the 30th of May. It'll be out in all good bookstores so people can find it at their local. If, if their local bookstore doesn't have it in, they can always ask. Uh, and libraries, I love libraries. Mm-hmm. They They do a really good job by authors, particularly Australian authors, and support them. And you're doing an author a favour by borrowing a book from the library because libraries actually pay a small amount to authors every year, which I didn't know until I started publishing books. Ah, but uh, cool. yeah, they do. They put a little bit of money aside for a, a scheme called public lending rights. And it's just about to be extended to digital ebooks that you borrow from your library awesome. and audio books too. That's so cool. And that really is that beautiful circular economy as well. So that's very, it's just fantastic. And support your local independent booksellers where you can, definitely. Absolutely. Oh, May, it's been such a pleasure and I've talked to you, well, I've just absolutely inundated you with questions. Thank you so much for your time today. It's just been an absolute pleasure. No worries. Thank you so much, Emily. It's really lovely to be able to chat to you and, you know, I look forward to the new season of the podcast and hearing what other fabulous guests you've got coming up. So many great snippets coming up in the magazine too. I'm sure I look forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be a cracker. One of the things I find really inspiring about Maya is she had this dream for such a long time to write a book, and it came true after having her children and building a house, living in the country far from the big smoke. This is obviously testament to her tenaciousness, hard work, writing skills, and for getting out there and chasing that dream down. I love how she's helping to shine a light on rural romance and celebrating storytelling that makes the heart sing and smiles abound. We love love, and we love happy endings too. Thank you to you all, our Grazy Herd listeners, for continuing to tune in and being part of this wonderful community. You help us do what we love, and we're grateful for you. Please jump on the platform you're listening to us from 
and rate and review. This pushes the podcast onto the public domain and helps others find us. Until next time, keep well. I'm Em Herbert and this is a Grazy Her Podcast. <laughs>